Um, but um, the passage that we're looking at today fits uh, quite well, Mark 11, into uh, the season of Lent that we're in. We're three and a half weeks into the season of Lent and of course that's a time where we're preparing ourselves uh, for this uh, great event of Jesus' death on Good Friday and his glorious resurrection on Easter Sunday. And and this um, Mark 11 passage actually marks a a turning point in the Gospel of Mark where uh, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. So there's kind of three main sections in the Gospel of Mark and this is the final section which is really the Lenten section in a sense where he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Now, due to a little bit of a mishap during the um, planning, we're doing a, essentially, this is, um, you might notice, a Palm Sunday passage, uh, two weeks before Palm Sunday. Uh, So uh, Jacob is going to be preaching uh, on Palm Sunday on the same theme in two weeks from now, and I'm sure he'll be able to find uh, more to expound on the theme of Palm Sunday, and and if not, sorry for stealing your thunder. Yeah, I will, I will. I'm going to go for it. Uh, So uh, there's three things that I'd like to draw out from the passage uh, with you guys this morning. Uh, And and, and they're sort of based on three sections in the passage. And as I was reflecting and preparing, there's actually a nice um, image that goes with each of the three sections. So I'll explain that to you in a second. So we're looking at uh, the idea that Jesus is the final temple. But uh, here are the three things. Firstly, I want us to see the character that Jesus has, or in other words, what's the meaning of the donkey? Okay, so that's the kind of picture that wraps up that first idea, the character that Jesus has. Then secondly, uh, in verses 15 to 17 in particular, uh, I want to look at the power Jesus brings, or in other words, what's going on at the temple. And then finally, uh, this is actually the middle bit in the passage, but I'm going to look at it last, how Jesus, I want to look at how Jesus produces his character in us, or what's the point of the fig tree? So that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, So let's look firstly at the character that Jesus has, or in other words, what's the point of the donkey? Now, the background, I think a helpful background to this um, passage is to think of um, the Caesar uh, coming into uh, the the town. And and look, I'll just show you a picture. Uh, this, This is a picture of Caesar with all pomp and ceremony uh, with his chariot and his horses and you can imagine the fanfare uh, and, the, and the pomp and ceremony with that. So, so this is, should be the backdrop uh, to the picture that we have of Jesus here. Or here's another one of a Caesar uh, on his chariot with his horses in all pomp and ceremony and grandeur. Or a modern day version of this, um, very much the same. Uh, do you know who that is? That's, that's Xi Jinping. Um, so, so there he is in the army vehicle. You've got just, have you seen those images on the news? I mean, they are just aw- awesome in the literal sense. Like this army, this vast army with all the weapons. So, so our culture, we're not unfamiliar with the idea of kings or rulers coming in in pomp and ceremony. But that's what makes the picture of Jesus here so jarring. I mean, it's almost embarrassing that this king, the king of kings, is coming on what? On a donkey, humble and riding on a donkey. Now, this picture is probably pushing it a little bit too far, but it would almost be like Xi Jinping riding there on a unicycle. Can you imagine that? Now, I I, I admit that that's that's going too far, but I'm just trying to help you picture 
just the incredible um, juxtaposition that we have here of power and weakness, majesty and meekness. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's bringing these things together. The idea of authority and humility being combined. And, and, and actually what he's doing is he's very deliberately fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah 9 verse 9, what Jesus is doing with this donkey thing. Um, and, and this is what it says. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. This is the prophecy, right? And what do we see here in the picture? We, we're in Jerusalem. Jesus has just arrived. He's arriving in Jerusalem. And what are the crowds doing? They're rejoicing greatly. And, and so he's fulfilling this prophecy. And it continues in, in Zechariah 9, um, 9. Look, your king is coming to you. He's victorious, powerful, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So do you see what he's doing here? He's victorious, and yet he's humble, riding on a donkey. Um, I found this quote from... Uh, Mao Zedong. I mean, it's just a, it's just a zinger, and it just p- provides again this sharp contrast to Jesus. Uh, Mao Zedong once said, "Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun." Anyone taking any notice of what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment? Myanmar, all across the world, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. And yet here's Jesus, victorious but humble, riding on a donkey. This is, these are unbelievable qualities to be putting together. Power and weakness. There's a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Excellency of Christ where he reflects on the image of Jesus in Revelation 5 where he's a lion and a lamb. He looks like a lion and a lamb. These two contrasting images, Edward says, a lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and is a sacrifice for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is both because these two radically different images are wonderfully met in Jesus. In fact, these two images are so radically different that they would be utterly incompatible in anyone else. Utterly incompatible. But that's the character that Jesus has. You know, the passage we heard from last week, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be um, crucified and betrayed. The Son of Man, we think of that, oh, that's the human part of Jesus. No, that's Daniel 9. That's the glorious vision of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with heaven in all glory, power, and majesty. Right? He's saying that Son of Man, that glorious Son of Man is what? He's going to be crucified and betrayed. Jesus is the lion and the lamb, and that's the character that he has, firstly. Secondly, let's look at the power Jesus brings in verses 15 to 17. Jesus arrives in the temple, and um, uh, Tim Keller, I think, uh, he would have been in the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer outer court of the uh, Gentiles, and here's what... Um, Tim Keller describes the scene. When he walked in, he would immediately have seen thousands of people buying and selling animals at hundreds of locations and hundreds of currency, uh, foreign currency money changes. Um, You see that um, 
that the Roman coin was unclean and so that was um, not appropriate for them to pay for their sacrifices in the temple because it was unclean. So they actually had to change their currency to like a temple currency um, to have clean money. And so that's why there's money changes uh, in there. And... um, and so it's quite a scene. And Josephus was a, um, a first century historian. He was a Jewish historian. And he actually um, notes what happened one Passover when he was in Jerusalem. And he said that 25,000 lambs during Passover were bought, sold, and sacrificed. 25,000 lambs. And that was, one, that was one Passover festival that he notes. So just imagine how noisy and chaotic the, new, the trading floors are in the New York Stock Exchange, right? And think how chaotic that is. Throw in 25,000 lambs, and that's the scene that you've got. And this is the place where the Gentiles are supposed to be praying and meeting with God and worshipping and listening to God. So what does Jesus do? He starts throwing furniture everywhere, lifting up tables, forcing people out of the temple, not allowing them to carry stuff through. And he says in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers? Get it out of here. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. Then the religious are shocked, right, and outraged. How dare he do this? And this isn't normal shock or outrage. What do they do? It says from that point on, they planned how to kill him. We're going to kill this guy. How dare he? Now, I think this is more than what was prophesied in Malachi 3. Malachi 3 said, On the day of the Lord, when he visits the temple, he's going to purge and cleanse the temple. That's what it says. That's the last book of the Old Testament. When the Lord comes to the temple, he's going to purge and cleanse the temple. But I think this is even more shocking, and which is why they're so outraged. I think what Jesus is doing, what he knows, what he's ultimately going to do, is he's actually going to get rid of the sacrificial system altogether. He's going to get rid of the temple altogether. What he's saying is these Gentiles can come straight in. They're going to be able to come straight in. I'm getting rid of all of this. I'm getting rid of... Because they would have had to buy their pigeons or doves or animals to make their sacrifice. Jesus, I'm getting rid of it. And the priests are absolutely outraged. That's why they want to kill him. I want to try and show you how, how shocking this is from telling you some of the history of the temple, okay? Because we're all unclean Gentiles. I'm not sure if there are any people with Jewish ancestry here, but we're just like, yeah, of course, like, that, this is normal, but this was shocking uh, because um, in the Old Testament, the, the history of the temple goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? And, and it's, it's the, where the presence of God is and evil can't exist where the presence of God is. And so there's no decay, there's no death, there's no deformity, there's no destruction because the perfect presence of God is there. And it's bliss, it's perfection, it's harmony, love, joy and delight. But then Adam and Eve decide to build their lives on a different foundation than God. And it's a shaky foundation, and so it all comes crashing down. They decide to center their lives on something other than God, and so it sends them and the whole world into a tailspin. And they get kicked out of the garden because they cannot exist in the presence of God's perfect presence anymore. And what do they see when they look back into the garden? 
they see two angels with flaming swords going every which way and never stopping. So no one could make it back into the presence of God without getting chopped to pieces, basically, without dying. So what's that about? Well, Jesus is, it's Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Turning your back on God has a price. We say, well, why, God, why can't God just forgive? Why can't you say sorry and just forgive? Well, if you're a victim, if you've been the victim of genuine heinous crime, you know that a price has to be paid. You know the outrage of injustice when, when, there's, when justice isn't fed and isn't given. Um, we see this in the Australian of the Year at the moment, Grace Tame. I mean, I, I watched her address and, I mean, I, I forced myself to continue to listen at, at the horror of what was inflicted upon her. And do you know what the abuser happened? Do you know what the penalty for the abuser was? It was just two years. It was only two years for what she went through. And that is justifiably an outrage for us, that justice wouldn't be served. And so if you say to a person like that, well, what if they say, sorry, why can't you just, why can't you just forgive and, and, and move on with it? Well, well, no. Justice needs to be served. We, we know this deeply, and yet we can miss it in terms of the way that we've treated God when we're the perpetrators. And, and you know, that's actually... One of the things that sin does is that it blinds us. There was another person, um, Rachel Denholander. Um, I follow this in USA Gymnastics. She, she's similar to Grace Tame, and I followed her story closely. And, and this was hundreds of people that, that this person hurt, uh, this man hurt. And, and he was like, well, I'm sorry. I'm a Christian. I'm sorry God forgives me. Why can't you, you forgive me? I said, no. And we can, see that we, we can see that justice ought to be done in that case. But because of sin's blinding effect on us, we, we fail to see the damage and the horror of what it is that we've done to God. And so the purpose of these flaming swords is, no, the wages of sin is death. There's a price to be paid for what you've done. And you can't come back in unless the pain, under the pain of death. And so here's the thing, okay, we fast forward now, that's the garden, we fast forward now to the temple. And when God's giving instructions to build the temple, why does he pick up on all this imagery from the garden with the, with the trees and the leaves and the rivers and the stones? And he says, I want you to decorate the walls of the temple with all of the stuff from, from the garden because he's recreating the garden uh, of Eden in the temple. And in the centermost place of the temple is the Holy of Holies and it's protected by what? It's protected by a curtain from some floor. And, I mean, I've seen depictions of the temple. I mean, it's probably like four times the size of this. And there's literally a curtain all the way up separating you from that place where the presence of God is. And guess what's depicted on the curtain? I learned this from a children's book. It's in the Bible. They've, de- they've embroidered the angels with the flaming swords are on, uh, is depicted on those curtains because that's, you can't get in unless there's a, there's a sacrifice that's paid. And then on one day uh, of the year, once a year, the high priest, the day of Yom, Yom Kippur, is able to go in to that holy of holies. And what does he have to do first? 
He has to make sacrifices to enter the way into the Holy of Holies. Uh, And even that, then the sacrifice, the scapegoat, that's just a symbol. That's just a symbol of of getting in. And you know, also in the Old Testament, there were prophecies about one day in the future, the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In other words, it's just in the Holy of Holies at the moment that this, this kind of awesome holy presence of God, but one day the glory of the Lord is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And in Psalm 96, it says, The trees of the wood will sing for joy before the Lord and, and when he comes to rule the earth. Or in Isaiah 55, The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands when the king comes to un- open the floodgates of God's glory, covering the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. I didn't realize this until preparing this week and I think it's right that do you know do you know I one reason why they're waving the the palm branches they're saying that Jesus is going to open the floodgates of God's glory to usher in a totally renewed world that the world itself is going to be born again that the world is going to come alive like the trees clapping and dancing their dancing and clapping their hands and you know what it says that in Romans chapter 8 verse 19 it says all creation groans for the revelation of the glory of the sons of god what it's saying is that one day we're going to come into we're going to see Jesus we're going to come into our adoption which is going to be we're just going to be bursting with glory and then the whole creation will then be broken up and burst out into its glory. And, and it's like the, the very nature itself will come alive. The world will become re-enchanted. I was talking on, on Wednesday night about how our world in the West over the last 500 years has become completely disenchanted. In other words, we're basically deists, that there's no spiritual reality. There's, there's no spiritual life. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to uh, Olivia at the moment. And here's someone who had a sanctified imagination, right? Who, who could see, uh, used his imagination to bring the truth of Scripture to reality. Here's what he says at one point. He says, we all want something else which can hardly be put into words. That's why in the oldest stories, we've peopled the air and the earth and the water with elves and nymphs. That's why our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off is no mere fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. For if we take the scriptures seriously, God will one day give us the morning star. The trees and the hills will sing with us. So the ancient myths and poetry, so false as history, may be truth as prophecy. Isn't that amazing? That's the power Jesus brings. He's coming to the temple to open the floodgates of God's glory that it would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But how does he do it? Mark 15, after Jesus breathes his last, guess what happens? The curtain is torn in two. The curtain with those flaming swords is torn in two. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. 
who opens the floodgates of God's glory through his death so that when he breathed his last, the curtain was torn in two. Jesus came to get rid of the temple because he is the temple. Jesus came to get rid of the sacrificial system because he is the true and better sacrifice once and for all sins. So that's why the, the t- curtain is torn in two through his sacrifice. You know, Scott Peck is a famous psychiatrist. He's written books like People of the Lie and he spent pretty much his whole career dealing with deeply troubled people and he spent his whole time writing and thinking about um, dealing with evil and how to deal with evil. Um, and, uh, and here's what he says. He says, how do you defeat evil? He's not a Christian. Um, he says, I don't really understand it, but I do know whenever you see evil defeated, somebody has to sacrifice Somebody has to sacrifice. This is a psychiatrist, a secular psychiatrist speaking. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, saying, when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the table will crack and death itself will start working backwards. That's what Jesus has come to do at the temple. Friends, that's the power that Jesus unleashes to open the floodgates of his Holy Spirit into our hearts and one day when he comes back, it will cover the, the sea, cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the power that Jesus brings. That's what he's doing at the temple. Isn't that awesome? I can't wait till he comes back to finish the job. So let's look now at, the, at how Jesus reproduces his character in us or what's the point of the fig tree. Now, I do have to admit at this point that this whole story of Jesus cursing a fig tree looks pretty bad for Jesus. I mean, it seems to put him uh, in a pretty bad light. He is, I mean, so he's hungry, he wants something to eat, he sees a fig tree, he wants some figs, he goes over to get some figs, it doesn't have any figs. So he curses it. And it's not even fig season, it tells us. Like, it's very clear. This is even the time for figs. And so one commentator, T.W. Manson, says, this is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. (laughs) William Barclay says, this story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance in it. Well, I want to say I think they're wrong. It's easy to explain. When you see it, you can't unsee it. In fact, one commentator has said that Jesus had made the fig tree more fruitful in a metaphorical sense by cursing it than he would have done if he ignored it because of 2,000 years of people learning from the fig tree. made it far more fruitful by cursing it than by leaving it alone in a metaphorical sense. So here's what's happening. Jesus is simply using the fig tree as an illustration or an object lesson. And here's the parable. It's a parable about hollow religiosity. Because see what happens. He sees a fig tree. It looks green and lush and great from a distance. But he comes up closer and it turns out to be a dud. It's good from afar. But when he gets there, it's far from good. Then he goes into the temple and there's a whole lot of noise. There's a whole lot of activity. There's a, whole, there's a great vibe. There's a whole lot of cool stuff happening. It looks really impressive, but it all adds up to a whole lot 
of nothing. And worse than nothing. It's a whole lot of hollow religiosity. There's plenty of people there, but there's no prayer. It's a house of prayer. There's all kinds of programs, but there's no power in their lives and in the holy, power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, if you believe that I died on the cross to open the floodgates of God's glory into your lives and the power of the Holy Spirit into your lives, that same glory that shook Mount Sinai and that if people touched it, they would die. And that same glory that was revealed to Isaiah in chapter 6 where he fell flat down on his face and said, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I have seen the King. If you think I died on the cross to unleash that glory and that power into your life and all you've got is a whole lot of religious activity with no power you're missing the point if all you've got to show for it is a whole lot of programs that you're running and there's no prayer you're missing the point Paul talks in, in 2 Corinthians 3 uh, 2 Timothy 3 5 about having a form of godliness but denying its power The form is there, but there's no power. That's the parable and the lesson of the fig tree. Jesus is saying that if you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then you better have a whole lot more than just religious activity to show for it. Reading the Bible, coming to church, doing all those things. You better have a whole lot more than that because I died for so much more than that. And the power that I've unleashed in your life is for so much more than a bunch of religious activity. There needs to be genuine character change from the inside out. Root to branch, as they say. In other words, so if you're an anxious person, is it clear? Is it becoming clear to the people around you that you are actually getting victory over that anxiety? If you're an angry person, is it actually clear to the people around you that you're overcoming that anger and becoming more gentle and peaceful? That you're bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit? If you're an insecure person, that you're becoming more secure? If you're a judgmental person, that you're becoming more humbled or a lazy person, that you're becoming more productive. Genuine power to change from the inside out. In other words, is it clear to people around you that Jesus is taking control of you and he's cleaning out the trash? A renovation of the heart. You see, religion or self-help and behaviour modification cannot do this. It cannot produce this kind of power or radical change from the inside out. And what it certainly can't do is produce in you those contradictory qualities of the lion. Bold, courageous, confident, assertive, combined with the character of the lamb. Humble, gentle, meek, mild kind because religion or self-help says you've got to do these things and then you'll live here's the list of things here's the standards and then you'll attain the peace or the blessing or or heaven or nirvana or enlightenment but that approach will never bring both the the character of a lion and the lamb here's what happens either you'll be really good at the religion and this happens in the church you'll be really good at it and so you'll have the confidence of a lion 
and the boldness of a lion. But you'll be insensitive to the people who struggle. And you'll be condescending. You'll be self-righteous. Or the opposite will happen. You'll, really, you'll be terrible at religion. I haven't read my Bible this week. I haven't been to church. I've kind of slammed someone. I, 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 whatever it was. And then so you'll have the character of a lamb. Meek, mild, humble. Because of how terrible that you're doing. And probably a kind of reverse kind of resentment at all those people up there who are doing so well and don't realise how hard we've got it. Does does this ring in any bells? It can't produce in you both the character of a lion and the lamb, which is the character that Jesus has and the character that Jesus wants to produce in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the thing. If Jesus loves you and your acceptance is totally and radically, completely in spite of your record, in spite of your performance, in spite of your past, what if the, the way that God loves you depends not on those things, but on Jesus' record and on Jesus' performance and on Jesus' past? That's when you start to have those qualities produced in you. Look, there's a, there's a, there's a show on ABC Radio called The Year That Made Me, where people come on and they talk about pivotal moments in their personal history. Uh, you, can, you can check it out. So at the moment it's got Grace Tame, it's got Steve Waugh and it's got Christopher Pine talking about pivotal moments in their personal history. Well, friends, the, the, the way of growth for a Christian is, is, is discovering that the year that made me was the year that Jesus took all of my sin, all of my failure, all of my shame and nailed it to the cross and at the same time he gave me by complete grace, all of his awards, all of his achievements, and all of his accolades. That is the year that made me. And so I bring the highs of my highs, and I actually rewrite that story through the lens of the cross. And my lows I bring. And more and more, the way that I tell my story is through the lens of the cross. That's the year that made me. And this is how God produces the character of the lion and the lamb. So, if I have a problem with pride or arrogance or self-righteousness or brashness, which we can all do at times, I look at the cross and I realize, I begin to learn that I was so bad that he had to die. The cross is a picture, I'm so bad that he had to die. And what does that do to someone who's bold or arrogant like a lion? It's humbling. And so God begins to produce in you the quality of a lamb, humility, gentleness, kindness, tenderness, because it's incredibly humbling as you gaze upon the cross. Or if you're at the other end, someone who's cowardly or who retreats or who's anxious or insecure and you're too much of a lamb, you look at the cross and you see that I'm so loved that he was glad to die. The son of God. I'm so worthy and loved by him that he gave his only son for me. And that produces in a lamb the boldness of a lion. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him give us all things? I've got God at my back. And so the lamb begins to take on the character and quality of a lion by gazing upon the cross. This might not come out well because I, I fumbled it this morning, but I'm going to try anyway. Um, 
one of you recently asked me, how did you get into ministry? Now, I don't like how I got into ministry. And so here's the story that I want to tell, desperately want to tell. There was a prophecy before I was born of Billy Graham over the top of me. And I was earmarked from a very young age and destined for greatness in ministry. And uh, uh, I was preaching to crowds of thousands by the time I was 15. I mean, you look at George Whitfield and Spurgeon. I mean, that's true of those guys. And that's a story that I've wanted to tell. And within the bounds of truth, I've tried to tell that story. But obviously, that's a very hard story to tell, right? So, so I'm a lamb. I'm a lamb. It's my shame. It's my failure. Because the real story of how I got in is I didn't get any of my uni preferences. And I was desperate and depressed and dejected. And, I, and my young adults pastor said, Kieran, I reckon you should try out... Um, uh, going, to, going to Ridley College, um, studying theology and doing a youth ministry internship. Now, he could have said, Kieran, I reckon you should join the circus and I would have done it because I was so desperate and so dejected and so depressed. I would have gone into the circus. I just needed some guidance and needed some help. And that's how I went into ministry. Now, we say that we're saved by grace. We say that, yeah, we're Christians and we live and we, we're saved by grace, but we don't live like that. We live by works, by achievement, by my success. And, and God has done an amazing work in me in the last two years where I can actually tell people the real story of how I got into ministry because my identity is, because I've learnt the year that made me. The year that made me is not the year of my failure, the year of my shame, the year of my mistakes. I've taken that to the cross. And the year that made me is the year that Jesus took all that on the cross for me. And in its place, he gave me his righteousness, his beauty, his glory. And he gazes on me like a loving father. And that's where I build my identity. Friends, we say that we know the gospel and that we live by grace, but we live by works. We don't believe it. And so James, in James chapter 1, he says... He says exactly this. He says, let the humble person boast in his exaltation. Let the humble person boast in his... This is in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. What he's saying is the humble person, the person who failed and is miserable, what you need to do is you need to take that to the cross and you need to see that you're so loved that he was glad to die for you. And that'll become the year that made me. And those of you who are arrogant, self-righteous, condescending, better than everyone else, you need to come to... It says, but the, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. You come... Are there any rich people around here in Cottesloe? The rich people and, and the people who are the, like the lion, who have killed it at religion, who've killed it at work, who've killed it at home, who are drop-dead gorgeous. Those people boast in your humiliation. And come to the cross and see that you are so bad that Jesus had to die. And that produces in the person as bold as a lion the character of a lamb and the person who is humble as a lamb the character of a lion. And this is the power that Jesus came to unleash when he died on the cross and the curtain was torn in two and the glory of the Lord will fill our hearts and one day it will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what he came for. Have you got that? Would you like some more of that? So here's a question for us. As we as a church begin to sprout new branches 
green shoots, leaves of growth. The real question for us as a community and the real question for you is this. Is there any real fruit? Or is it good from afar but far from good on closer inspection? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and self-control. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you're true, you're alive. You came to open the floodgates of your glory and the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Lord, we look at our lives and we can see that there's maybe a lot of leaves but not much fruit. We confess that to you, Lord, I confess that to you. So please come, Lord Jesus, and cleanse the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We give you permission, Lord. We open our hearts individually for you to come and cleanse the temple, take out the trash, rearrange the furniture, come and dwell richly and powerfully in us. Speak to us where we're at, Lord, because you're the one who knows. The heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure, except you are the great physician and you can heal our hearts. So dwell richly in us individually and dwell richly in us in a community that we might bear fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.